Hi, everybody. My name is Pat Hogarty, and welcome back to California Real Estate Finance, or Real Estate 320, as we uh, commonly refer to it. This happens to be show number nine. And what we're going to be doing today is talking about something called federal regulation and consumer protection. Uh, just a quick reminder to you that, uh, again, not to sound like a broken record, but I will, and that is you should have a uh, long, long time ago downloaded the study guide. You should be have looked up all those answers. Uh, remember that you want to make sure that uh, you're doing everything to get those correct. Uh, remember you have a class discussion board that you can work together on any kind of studying that you're going to be doing. I uh, kind of strongly encourage that. The only thing that I want to caution you about is the fact that to make sure that if you're getting advice from somebody who sounds like they're more knowledgeable than you are, check out and make sure their answer is correct. Uh, the reason why I say that, I remember that there was a lady that I had a, several years ago in my West Sacramento class. She was really smart, but what would happen is she'd get together in a group with other people, and she would listen to those people's answer, and just so happened many times, not many times, but some of the times they weren't correct, but she was. And she would end up putting down the answer that they had all come together and recommended, only to find out what she originally had, she was correct. So uh, keep that in mind uh, when you're doing that. Anyway, so you want to make sure you download that study guide. You're looking up the answers because the first midterm exam is, uh, in reality, not that far away. It's uh, Make sure to check your exam schedule on Blackboard, and uh, it'll tell you what the date and the times and locations are going to be. With that, we're going to move into the chapter now. What we're going to be doing is talking about two things uh, your chapter discusses. The first one is going to be called, is called federal regulation. And when we talk about federal regulation, we're specifically discussing those rules and those laws that have been put forth and signed into, uh, you know, through Congress, signed by the president, and are now laws that are uh, regulating housing, who can own it, uh, who. Uh, uh, having laws that don't so that we don't discriminate against certain groups of people that's what we're talking about those kinds of federal regulations uh, what kinds of disclosures we have to make to people when they buy homes that's the kind of uh, regulations we're talking about the second thing is called consumer protection and when we discuss that part of it the concept behind the consumer protection is to realize that whenever you're buying a home in fact I think this is probably true for just about any product but specifically for a home it can be a fairly complicated process, not only to the normal consumer, but in many cases even to us or we who are in the industry every day on a day-to-day -day basis. Uh, it's fairly complex, and there's always no rules, new regulations. And so consequently, the idea of consumer protection is to put forth legislation that will make sure that the consumer is fairly represented, is discl has disclosure of what information is actually happening in the transaction and has provided information so that they can make a more intelligent decision as to whether or not to go and have which loan program to go with. Okay, and so we'll be talking about that. So what I'm going to be doing as usual, I'll be back and forth. I'll be talking using the document camera. Also today I may very well be bringing some stuff up on the Internet. Remember that I've spent quite a bit of time, believe me, probably several hours uh, before I've ever talked in front of the class, of finding stuff on the web that can help uh, explain what the book is trying to cover. Also keep in mind that not only are these links important because they're covering that topic, but they're also providing a resource 
or a place that you can go to to find answers about specific questions you may have. So, um, and I'll be doing that in the last part of this. I'll be showing you some places where you can find that information about FHA programs. Kind of, I'm always doing this all the time because, as I've mentioned many times before, when these books come off the press, uh, you know, that could have been a year, two years ago. And what happens is as soon as it comes off the press, it's probably there's something in there that's out of date. And the way that you can keep up on a lot of this stuff is by using the Internet, making sure you're going, reading newspaper articles, magazines, and keeping up with, with what's going on. So, again, I'm going to move over here to my old friendly uh, camera. And uh, just want to point out some things. Now, some of this stuff I'm, I'm going to kind of read because I don't really know any other way to do this except by pointing out in the book certain things that I think are important, and then emphasizing what those points are and talking about them. But what they talk about here in the beginning is they say the federal government has a long history and legislation that protects property ownership and prohibits discrimination, which is true. The federal government has always worked on it, especially since uh, the time of the Civil War, which is where we essentially fought the North, uh, North and the South fought over slavery. So we've had, you know, we went to war over this, the Civil War, and as a result of that, we've had a lot of legislation that's been passed. Uh, the U.S. Constitution severely limits the government's ability to take private property of citizens except for public use. What we're talking about in that case, and that law has been maybe clarified a little bit, that has to deal with condemnation or where, where, where the government can go in and condemn property or take property from private, pub, private citizens for the use of the public. Okay, that's what we're talking about there. But the, their role is very limited on what they can do. They just can't decide, well, I'm going to go take this property. There has to be certain guidelines that they follow. In addition, the Bill of Rights assures the citizens of the United States extraordinary personal freedom. These freedoms were explained by the adoption of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments of the Constitution immediately after the Civil War. These amendments not only did away with slavery, but also addressed the concept of anti-discrimination. So when we talk about these, this legislation, we're talking about discrimination, if you will, based on race, creed, color, national origin, sex, so on and so forth. Uh, it goes down further to here, and it says, additionally, during this period, Congress also passed specific anti-discrimination legislation that addressed ownership of real property. Since that time, Congress has strengthened that original legislation with the additional laws that, that cover real estate sales, ownership, rental, lending, and appraisal. Uh, in addition to laws prohibiting discrimination, there are laws that prohibit abusive sales, loan practices, as well as legislation that addresses disclosure. Okay, and the last part here that I think is important, it says disclosure requires that all pertinent information about a property or a loan be provided to enable a consumer to make informed choices in lending processes. It is important that that professional real estate, and I'll pull up the other page, and finance practitioners, practitioners should be aware of and understand and comply with these federal laws. Now, let me mention something about this disclosure. First of all, it's quite evident from reading the opening passage of this book that what the, you know, the United States government is doing continually works on, continually um, uh, addresses the issue of any kind of discrimination that anybody. So essentially what's happening is just anybody 
is allowed to or can and should not be discriminated from buying, renting homes, uh, leasing homes, staying, uh, you know, like in motels, hotels, whatever. There's no discrimination allowed. The other thing is this disclosure. And one thing I want to mention about the disclosure is this, is in their infinite wisdom, the U.S. government, along with state agencies, have worked very hard at trying to disclose facts to people, to the public, when they get ready to buy a home. The bad, the, the good, that's a good thing. The bad thing about it is that a lot of times this information is produced or provided to consumers, and they are provided so much information that they really, in a lot of cases, don't even know what they're reading. And when I really think about it, for example, uh, you know, when you get ready to buy a house, uh, one of the things that, just to give you an idea of some of the disclosure that is involved, and there is just tons of disclosures, for example, when you get ready to buy a house, a, a one-to-four bedroom or a one-to-four unit home, you're required or the seller is required by law to fill out disclosure statements disclosing anything that they feel that materially affects the value of that property. They are required to do things such as show you at least or check off an inventory of what there is in the house. In other words, does it have smoke alarms? Does it not? Does it have a microwave oven? What does it have? Uh, it has and uh, all of the components in the house work well. So that's one of the areas where they're required to disclose stuff. The next thing is when you get ready, and we'll talk about this more, when you get ready <clears throat> to buy the house, you're also going to be given a lot of reports that are now required by law. You're going to get a termite report. You're going to get a title report. You're going to get an appraisal. So what's happening is the consumer is sitting there getting all of these documents, and that's nothing next to, for example, they're supposed to be provided things like the Homeowners Association rules and bylaws and budgets. They're supposed to be provided the covenants, conditions, and restrictions. Uh, and that's just on the house itself. So if you can imagine, that's a heck of a lot, a big pile of disclosure types of information that's provided to the consumer. And in those reports are a lot of things that a lot of people maybe don't necessarily understand, but they're required by law to at least be given it so that they can read it. Now, when it comes to actually getting a loan, what happens with a loan, and we'll talk about it more, is that once they are provided or somebody signs up for a loan, they are going to get something called a good faith or best faith estimate, which essentially means this is what the lender feels the costs of the loan are going to be and the interest rate is going to be and the monthly payments are going to be, and we'll talk more about that. They're also required to get what we call a settlement uh, sheet, which near the end, one day prior to the close of escrow, they're going to have this form that's going to show where all their money went. That's another disclosure. So what I'm really kind of trying to emphasize here is that consumers are given a lot of information. And I personally don't know how well that really helps, in some cases, the consumer to make a decision because they just feel completely overwhelmed when they sit down to read all of these documents. Uh, your job if you will, as a sales agent or a real estate person or as a loan consultant, is to try to help the consumer understand as best you possibly can what facts, material facts there are that affect their decision on buying the home or on getting the loan. Okay, And again, there's a lot of information. That's why a lot of times I recommend to real estate agents to turn around and give people stuff as you go along and maybe have little small meetings with them and go over and make sure that they understand what they're really signing. Uh, 
The other problem that you run into, too, with, with people is that you'll have two types of people when you're doing this disclosure. You'll have one type that says, I want to read all of the reports, all the facts, and if you give them 10,000 pages to read, they'll read every page. They want to know the details. On the other hand, you're going to have your clients that could care less. All they want to do is sign the paperwork and get in the house. The hard thing is, is that those people on the other end of this are the ones that maybe didn't know something and a year or two later find out that because they didn't ask that question, now they're faced with something like they didn't know that the loan was going to have a, an adjustment in its monthly payment after, say, two years or something. So that's why it's important that you make sure you disclose all this to the client and give them some time to think about it. And I think they would appreciate it. Anyway, going back to the, dis, uh, the, the different types of legislation, the first Civil Rights Act that they had, and I, I see this, the reason why I emphasize this is that I see people on the exam sometimes because the dates are so close. There was the 1860s, right after the Civil War, and there was the 1960s. And here's what the interesting thing about that and why students will get this confused is the 1860s is when we had the Civil War, okay? The 1960s, on the other hand, was a period of time in which there was a lot of legislation. There was a lot of protests. Uh, for example, during the Johnson administration, we had, uh, we had the Civil Rights Act. We had, um, we had civil rights marches. We had Martin Luther King, who uh, worked and uh, actually died for uh, freedom so that everybody would have freedom. Uh, there was a lot of things that were done during that era, and that's why people will get them mixed up. They'll think, actually, hey, wait a minute, they, uh, you know, the book really meant 1966 and not 1866. But you have to understand there's a 100 years difference here in what's going on. So anyway, the Civil Rights Act of 1866 was the first piece of legislation passed by Congress after the Civil War that dealt with real estate in particular. Then it goes on and says the Civil Rights Act of 1866 provides that all citizens of the United States shall have the same right in every state territory as, to equ as, as, as is enjoyed by white citizens thereof to inherit, purchase, lease, sell, hold, and convey real and personal property. So it's real and personal property. The act specifically prohibits any discrimination based on race or ancestry. So you would have thought you really would have thought Congress passed this law and that would have been it. Everybody would have stood up and saluted and said, yes, we'll do that from now on. But in reality, that's not what happened. Discrimination continued on for years and years and years and, and the rest of the 1800s, also in the beginning of the 1900s, until probably, I would say, when you started to take a look at what was happening in the 1960s. 1960s was sort of a a lot of things happening, a lot of different types of protesting going on during that period of time. We had the Vietnam War, so we had protests and that. We had, we had race riots. We just had all kinds of things. It was a very active, if you will, period of time in the, in the 1960s. Uh, lots and lots of things were going on. But it goes on. It says the law was not really enforced after the latter part of the 19th century, which was the 1800s. And it was not challenged in court until 1968. So that's not a misprint. That's actually 1968. So we're talking about almost a little over 100 years went by. In the historic uh, Jones versus Mayer case, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the 1866 federal law prohibits all racial discrimination, private or public, 
in the sale or rental property, the court upheld the constitutionality of the law based on the 13th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, which prohibits slavery. Okay? So you want to keep in mind that, that we, these rules, from a historical perspective, did not happen overnight. They've been going on for a long period of time. Whenever Congress passes a law or any legislation, legislative body passes a law, it does not mean that people follow the law immediately. There's usually people that will protest the law. People won't follow the law. As a result of that, there will be eventually some form of court cases. What court cases do is it allows people that feel that they've been wrong to bring something in front of, uh, of a judge, and the judge will listen to both sides of the case and then have a ruling. And that ruling may be actually disagreed with and appealed all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. What that helps do is it helps set a precedent and, and clarify what the law really means, because the law is really written, when you read them, is written in a very broad brush stroke. Most laws are. They're not specific, because they don't really know what the specifics are going to be until they start to happen. And then it's the law, it's the legal cases themselves that actually help clarify that position of law. So anyway, after that we had then in, um, let me see, the Federal Fair Housing Act uh, contained the Title VIII, uh, Title VIII of the Civil Rights Act of 1968, which, was, which this law, Congress broadened the pro, uh, protections of the Civil Rights Act of 1866. So it broadened something that had been in existence for over 100 years. <laughs> so it takes a while. The Federal Fair Housing Act makes it illegal to discriminate on the basis of race, religion, sex, national origin, handicap, so if somebody's handicapped, we can't discriminate against them because they're handicapped. Against families with children, now there is something I'll tell you about with families with children in a minute. In the sale or lease of residential property or in the sale or lease of vacant land for the construction of residential buildings. Okay, so that broadened the law. That gave it more authority, more power, more encompassing. Uh, after that, a couple things that I thought I would highlight is... There, there were things in here, and I don't know, when I'm reading this, I find some of this, in my opinion, is sort of interesting. And that's So sometimes it's important, and sometimes I just find it interesting when I highlight it. But I sort of like to know how we got, where, where we came from and how we got where we are today. So what this goes on with, it says religious discrimination is, per, is permitted. Okay, so underneath this is permitted in certain things. So it's permitted with respect to rentals in dwellings owned by religious organizations. Now, one of the things when I read this, I thought to myself, you know, and, and I think what was the key was the second sentence here where it said, lodging in private clubs is also exempt from anti-discrimination law if the club is truly private and, and non-commercial. That's maybe what's going on today, okay? But does not mean that that's going to, there have been court cases and there have been newspaper and magazine articles about, for example, where, uh, where there have been clubs that have only, that only men could exclusively belong to, and then they were opened up to that now women could. Some of the things that have happened, uh, for example, uh, we're seeing this going on right now today, which, you know, may not be in the housing area, but we'll see it in other areas. For example, Probably back, I don't know exactly what year it started, but at one time, all of the service academies, all of the military service academies, so we're talking about West Point, um, the, the Annapolis Naval Academy, the Air Force Academy, none of them allowed women to, to go there. 
They couldn't go there. At the same time, women couldn't do things like fly airplanes. Although what was interesting is that was current. Actually, during the Second World War, there were women pilots that ferried airplanes all over the world, but which they were that was taken away after the end of the Second World War and then brought back now where women fly helicopters, they fly fighter jets and everything else. So the point is is that any of these laws are, if you will, are what I think fluid and they're in, they could be changed, okay? And all it really takes is for somebody to sit there and say, I don't agree with that, I'm going to sue whatever that organization is, I'm going to stop them from doing that, and they get a court case going and they move forward. And then usually what they end up doing is, is that if, it's, if the case is strong enough and important enough, it may go all the way to the United States Supreme Court which then may result in some further legislation. So these things are always changing. So I wouldn't look at this and say, that's what the book says. I would look and see what's really going on. Um, it goes on from there. It says discrimination against families. This is one thing I think that's important. Discrimination against families with children is permitted by apartment complexes, condominiums, and other developments that qualify as housing for older persons under that act. Now, for example, uh, Sun City. Sun City, Roseville, Sun City, Lincoln Hills. Okay, these are retirement communities for people that are 55 years of age or older. Those communities specifically are designed for people that are in that older age bracket that do not want to have little children running around and making all kinds of noise. Now, one of my students in my class, you know, and I haven't verified this or validated it, but she told me that she has a house I don't know how she has it, whether she bought it or somebody left it to her or whatever, has a house in Lincoln Hills that she rents out. And that, and even so she owns it, she cannot live in it because she's not old enough. Okay? She's 52. She has to be 55. But you can discriminate based on, but it's not based on race, creed, color, religion, or anything like that. It's based on the fact of whether you're going to have kids running around or not. And the idea is, is that people want to have quiet, peace and quiet. So, again, you know, those are the people that like to live in those areas. I wouldn't want to live in those areas, but, you know, there's a lot of people that do. Uh, these exemptions are permitted in order to allow constitutional guarantee of freedom of association. So you can associate with all the people that are your age or older. That's the whole idea behind it, you know. People that live up there play golf together. They eat together. They do all kinds of stuff like that. Okay. Then after that, they get down into three areas in which legislation has been designed to help, uh, to, if you will, stop certain kinds of discrimination. And the three of those areas, number one is blockbusting, the second thing is something called steering, and the third thing is something called redlining. And I'll tell you, first of all, I'll read what this is, and then we'll go on. It says blockbusting is inducing property owners in a neighborhood to sell by predicting the entrance of minorities into the neighborhood. The person making the prediction buys the property and then sells it for a profit. This, um, so, and I saw this when I was a kid in New York. You know, that I wasn't old enough to necessarily understand everything that was going on. But what happened is, is that when you have a certain area, especially what was happening in the in the 40s, but really in the 50s, in the 50s and the 60s, is that people were moving out of the city and they were moving out to the suburbs. So communities during that period of time that were predominantly, uh, uh, the, the people that predominantly lived there were, say, white people, okay, 
what happened is, is those people were starting to move out of that community, and they were moving out into the suburbs. There was a lot of, especially after World War II, there were a lot of housing that was built for uh, returning World War II veterans. A lot of the veterans, for example, was the first time that they ever went to school. They were moving from being farmers to actually having jobs working for different kinds of company, auto, uh, you know, auto manufacturers, aircraft manufacturers, or whatever. And they were moving out, and there was big towns that were built, like Levittown back in New York, in New York where there was just these massive suburbs that were built that people moved into. Well, what happened is when those people moved out of the areas in the city where they normally lived out, what normally happens is when the people move out of that area, usually the lower people that make less money move in. And so what was happening is, is that the idea of the blockbusting was that you had a community in which all of these people lived, and a real estate agent would come in to the community and say, by the way, uh, the black people are moving into the community, or the Puerto Ricans are moving in. And when they move in, the value of the houses are going to go down. So maybe what you should do is sell your house today, and you'll get a good price for it. Oh, by the way, it's going to be a little bit less because everybody knows that's going to happen. And what would happen is they would buy the property at a very, very low price and then turn around and resell it again. And sometimes what they would do is be resell it to the people that were moving in. The, in other words, the minority people that were moving in, they would sell it at a higher price and they would make a profit. So that was really like a, a sham that was going on. And so there was blockbusting. That's a law that's been passed to stop that from happening. The second thing that they talk about in here is steering. And steering is the channeling of various applicants to specific areas in order to maintain or change the character of those neighborhoods. That can be one way or the other. You could have somebody walk into your office, if you could imagine during that period of time, and it might be a black couple that's looking to buy a house or a Puerto Rican couple or somebody from Mexico or some other country, and they would look at them and they'd say, oh, well, we know where you're going to go. So what they would do is they would put, take them to only those areas. No, no other areas. They would steer them in the direction of those areas. So this was to stop that from happening. Or they maybe even did this. You would advertise a house for sale or a rental property for sale, and all of a sudden somebody would show up at the door, and they would be black. And what they would do is turn around, and they would say, oh, I'm sorry, the place is already rented. So that would be another variation of this, stopping that from happening. The last area is something called redlining. And redlining is the refusal to make loans on properties in a particular era based on racially discriminatory reasons. And the concept behind this is that you can take any community in any city or town and you can actually draw a line around it and say this is where the wealthy people live, this is where the middle-income people live, and this is where the low-income people live. What would end up happening is that people that typically live in the low-income area, and I think I've said this before, are usually people that, um, if you go through the area, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure it out. A lot of the people that initially live in those areas are people that are coming from other countries. They're immigrants to this country. They're usually people that are usually working hard. They maybe have one, two, three jobs in order to make a living. Uh, they really don't financially can't afford to have a house. And if they do buy a house or somebody talks them into it, usually in some cases they don't, they're not knowledgeable enough to know that they're going to have additional costs involved, that owning a house is not, in some cases, as cheap as renting a property, that they're not going to have a landlord anymore that's going to come over and fix things. So what will end up happening is those people, and then if they lose their job, one of those jobs, you know, their whole financial situation can completely turn around because they maybe have two or three jobs. 
and one goes away, and next thing you know, they can't make the house payment. So what ends up happening is, is that they end up identifying those areas, the bank would, with a, with a map in the back room with a red line around it and say, don't, rent, don't make loans in those areas. And what's ended up happening is they said, no, you can't do that anymore. That is not fair. That is not correct. You can't do that anymore. So there's a law prohibiting that. Um, okay. After that, they had several other acts that were passed. Another one was the Equal Credit Opportunity Act. It is a federal law prohibiting those who lend money from discriminating against borrowers based on their race, sex, color, religion, handicap, national origin, age, or marital status. Okay, so you can't discriminate against that. Um, again, just goes on and on and on with some other laws. Um, this particular law, which was the Fair Equal Credit Reporting Act, uh, was enacted in 1974. And what the purpose of it was to really help women, because what was happening with women is that they would be they would be married, and the credit that they had or the credit that was being used was all in their husband's name. And so what would end up happening is if something happened to their husband, such as he died, he got sick, they got divorced or whatever, along with the husband went the credit rating. So you could have a couple that was married for 15, 20, 30 years. They're making their monthly house payments. They're doing fine. All of a sudden, the husband and the wife get a divorce or the husband dies. And the next thing you know, the wife no longer has that ability to borrow that money. Even so, maybe she's even been working. Uh, it was interesting, uh, as a sidelight, I remember <clears throat> when I first got married, I never had any credit cards. You know, I'm a guy, usually I paid cash for everything. If I needed anything, I went to the bank and got the money out. But when I got married, my wife had credit cards. And what was interesting is one of the companies here in town, one of the larger um, if you want, if you will, one of the larger um, retail stores found that when they found out, I don't even know how they did it, <clears throat> found out, they turned around and changed the name on the credit card from her name to my name. And I was never even had the credit card. And I remember the day that she got so angry over that. Why would you do that? I had the credit card. Those are my credit cards. They're not his. We're <laughs> married. You know, so that's the way the law was. The law was set up like this. So it's to protect it's to protect people. And, and when you read this, it's interesting because it says, enacted in 1974, the act was a result of hearings by the National Commission on Consumer Finance in 1972 that focused on the denial of credit to women. Okay, so that's where it started. It said married women who uh, were often denied credit in their own name even, even when they were the principal breadwinner in the family. You know, we talk about women being the principal breadwinner today, but, I mean, think back if you were going to, like in my case, I was going to school, kindergarten, first grade. My teachers were women. They were the primary breadwinner of their house. Some of them were single. You know, they were earning a good living. You know, yet at that same time, they had trouble getting credit. And I'm talking about I was going to grammar school way, way back in 55, 56, 57, okay? So, you know, this is going back a lot of years. Um let me see. Married women were often denied credit. If they, should, uh, if they should divorce their husbands, all credit was in the husband's names, and thus the women had no credit history and, by extension, no creditworthiness. And if you want to know what that's like, I remember the first time I ever applied for a loan uh, here in Sacramento. Again, if you remember, I said that I didn't have a credit card. And what happened is what was interesting is that I, the first house I bought, I was 21 years old. 
And when I bought the house, you know, I bought the house, I used the VA to get the house, so I was able to buy a house. But then I wanted to go out and get credit, or I wanted to buy furniture that went in the house. I needed a bed to sleep on. So I remember I went around, <clears throat> and I went to Levitt's, that's over here in North Sacramento. The salesman took me around. He showed me a bunch of furniture. I went in, you know, I, you know I, he said to me, how do you want to pay for this? And I said, you know, listen, can I make payments on it? He said, no, no problem. He f I fill out this application. He goes in the back. He comes back about 15, 20 minutes later, and he says, I got, a, he says, I got some news for you. I said, what's the news? He says, we got a problem about your credit. I said, well, what's wrong with my credit? He says, well, the problem is you don't have any. I said, what do you mean? He says, you have no credit. You've never borrowed any money. <laughs> so because of that, I couldn't get a loan. Okay, I actually the first people that ever gave me a loan was Sears and Roebuck to buy some uh, buy a bed, you know. But the thing is, if you don't have credit or credit history, you can't get it. So that's why it becomes a problem. Um, it says so if they divorced, um, they had no credit history uh, and no credit worthiness. Uh, the information gathered in this series of hearings was utilized by the House, by both houses of Congress, which would be the House and the Senate. <clears throat> uh, to develop a bill to protect the rights of women, both both married and unmarried, in the lending process. The initial law went into effect in 1974. Congress revisited the bill and expanded it to include additional protections based on age, race, color, religion, and those on welfare. This revised legislation became law in 1976. So again, that gives you a little bit of history uh, involved uh, with that. Um, okay, and I think I was underlining this because I thought that this was an interesting topic here. What this all has to do with is the fact that the federal government wants to make sure through legislation that people, all of us, have a fair chance at buying a home. We all have a fair chance at getting credit. The problem is, though, is at the same time, the federal government also sets up programs such as Fannie Mae, Ginnie Mae, Freddie Mac, or initiates those programs in which they establish guidelines for people that are going to get loans because they're going to buy those loans in the secondary market. And so when they do things such as saying that you, this person has to have a certain amount of income in order to be able to afford to buy a house, or they have to have a certain credit rating. In reality, what this thing is sort of doing is because you have these requirements and because some of these people possibly may be not have enough money, you know, not earn enough money because they're maybe new to the country or because they can't get a good job, in reality, that law is discriminating against those types of people. And let me read this and then you'll see what I'm talking about. It says, while an attempt to provide inclusiveness in minority and un uh, underrepresented groups in the lending process is laudable, it sometimes flies in the face of simple economics. Minorities are indeed underrepresented in the ability to acquire credit. However, many lenders argue that this is because they do not meet the credit guidelines that have been established to properly qualify borrowers for loans and not from some hidden agenda to deny them credit uh, because they are a minority group. So in other words, when we talk about those guidelines, those Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Ginnie Mae guidelines, okay, that says you have to make a certain amount of money, 
or you have to have a certain credit rating. In reality, that's like two people, if you will, speaking at both sides of their mouth is what they're really talking about here. What I would tend to argue with this, though, is to say that it is not right and it is not fair to people to put them in a home or make a loan to people to buy a home if they can't financially afford it. Okay, it's not fair to them. It might be uh, it might be better for them. For example, there are a lot of ways that you can buy a home without you buying it just on your own. For example, the most common thing is is that a husband and wife they get married and they use both of their incomes to be able to financially afford to buy the house. It's not uncommon. One of the things that I did when I bought my first house is I bought my house and then I rented out two of the rooms to two people, two guys that I was in the service with. That gave me enough income to make the monthly payment. Uh, it's not uncommon for mothers and daughters to go together to buy a house or fathers and son or partners, just friends. So there are a lot of different ways that people can go together to buy a house so that they can know economically they can afford it. And I think that's what people have to look at is can you economically afford this without sitting there and starving yourself to death month after month after month while you're trying to make these payments, okay, and maybe deferring things that need to be repaired. So that's why it's important, I think, in my mind. You know, and I, I, that's what I did when I bought my first house. I could not financially, I could financially afford to qualify, but what I really couldn't do in reality is sit there and make those monthly payments and have any money left that I could do something with. You know, so by renting out rooms, I was able to make it financially. Okay, so that's what I'm kind of saying here. Uh, the lenders argue quite reasonably that the same federal government that requires minority inclusiveness sets many of the lending guidelines that protect both federal insurance programs and investors in the marketplace. They further argue that they are in the business of making money. That's why a lender's in business. They're not in the business of making loans and losing money. And when you really think about that, that makes sense because, you know, if you made loans and every loan you put out you lost money on, you would be out of business fairly quickly. <laughs> Good loans to creditworthy borrowers, regardless of their minority status, help them to make money, uh, to make money. Okay, so that's what we're really trying to get through to on that particular part of it. Another act that was passed that becomes important is something called the Mortgage Disclosure Act of 1975. And this was passed by Congress. Okay, and what this is doing is it's it's um, if you will it's uh, it's I'll just go ahead and read through what uh, what it's doing here. It says the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act was specifically passed by Congress to deal with the problem of redlining. Okay. And the reason why is, is that what we're doing is we're saying to these mortgage brokers and banks, you need to report to us how you're servicing the community. And that's what this whole part of this part of the chapter is about. Because it goes on further, it says, as previously noting, redlining is the practice by lenders of refusing to make loans in certain neighborhoods based on neighborhood decline that is attributed to racial composition and perception of higher crime rates. And what happens is, is that the, what the law did, and this is something that if you've never had statistics, maybe you wouldn't realize, but what they ended up doing is they said, listen, you as a lender have to report back to us how you service that community. And what they use in order to do that is they use something called a statistical metropolitan area, 
which is a geographical area we have, that we have in Sacramento. And it's a way that we lay out census track information so that we can report on who lives in that area, what their income levels are, and then how well we service that area. That's the whole idea of that. So in other words, if a bank is making, I think it said 10 million, 10 million or more, what they have to do is they have to provide this kind of disclosure back, okay, to how well they're servicing that community, okay? All right, some of the other things, the other acts that were in here, there was another one called the Community Reinvestment Act of 1978. You'll notice most of these are happening in the 60s and the 70s right now. And the Community Reinvestment Act was passed to make all federally regulated institutions responsive to the needs of the communities by requiring them to publicize how well they were serving the local communities. So we talked about that. That's another one which is just a statement that they put out, how well they're servicing the community. It's a document that they have to produce. Uh, then the next act was something called the Financial Institutions Reform and Recovery and Enforcement Act. Love this. Remember, all this stuff always happens because of some catastrophe or some problem. That's how we end up getting this legislation. But the, this uh, Financial Institutions Reform and Recovery Act of 1989 was in response to the failure of the savings and loan industry in the 1980s. And I think I may have mentioned this before. I cannot remember which class I had mentioned this. But basically what happened is with the savings and loans, they got into areas of business that they should have really had no business to be in or did not have the knowledge to be in. They, they got into them because they asked for and received deregulation. There was a lot of shenanigans that went on during that period of time. There were a lot of loans that were made on real estate uh, in which the house, in some cases, the houses, there was always reports in the newspaper where they would go out and look and find out that a loan was made on a house and the house didn't exist. It was a bare piece of ground. Or there was uh, people, there were also schemes where people would actually trade the property from one person to the other, increasing the value of the property, and then finally they would get a loan on it based on that increased value, but it wasn't worth that, and it would go into foreclosure. So there was just tons and tons of this that went on. As a result of that, there were a lot of legislation that had to be put forth because of the fact that we as consumers ended up fixing the problem. A lot of people went to jail over this, too. Um, Probably one of the most famous ones is Lincoln Savings and Loan. was one of the larger ones. But part of this act also did this. That act requires licensing of all appraisers. This is what drives that licensing of real estate appraisers now and all of those educational requirements. Because it said requires the licensing of appraisers by all 50 states and sets up an appraisal subcommittee as federal agency to monitor the actions of lenders, state regulators, and the appraisal foundation. The appraisal foundation is the one that sets up the training, the guidance, and, and, and the certification and, and, and all that for the appraisers, okay? And other federal agencies. The agency has representatives from the federal financial regulatory agencies on its board. The agency is concerned with safeguarding the financial security of financial institutions, uniformly, uniformity of regulations among the member regulatory agencies, and anti-discrimination practices, and competency. This is the key word, and competency in the appraisal process. Because prior to this, you could go out and say, I'm an appraiser. I'm an appraiser, and put out appraisals. And uh, what would end up happening is, is that, you know, there was no legislation 
no laws that really govern whether you knew what you were talking about or not. Now, if you go to, for example, the Office of Real Estate Appraisers here in California, which is in downtown Sacramento, you'll find out, for example, if your basic appraisal thing that you can do, regardless of what your education is, is you're going to be a trainee. And you've got to put in, I uh, forget, I think it's a little over 2,000 hours on the job doing appraisals underneath the guidance of a licensed real estate appraiser okay, before you fulfill your on-the-job requirements to get your license so you can do your own appraisals. And then, by the way, when you get your license, it only limits you to a certain value of real property and only to those types of property you've been appraising. And there's levels that you go through in additional education, and they're even making it more stringent. In the year 2008, there's going to be new requirements that appraisers have to have. And so it can continue on, and the reason why is when you think about it, the loan officer, the person that is making the decision, not the loan officer, but the underwriter or the people that are making the loans, are deciding whether or not to lend money on a property based on the appraiser's report. They're making a decision, should I give this guy $400,000 or not? And they're looking at this appraisal. That's how key it is. I mean, when you really think about it, you need to have somebody that knows what they're doing. One thing it does do, though, is that this only involves, this, this, this licensing is only required on, uh, uh, applies to everyone associated with federally regulated transactions, okay? Which means, is the lender coming directly from, from the federal government or are the loans being sold to somebody, so, in other words, some sort of a government agency? So you're going to per pretty well find out that a lot of people are going to end up having to have appraisals on property using a licensed real estate appraiser. Very, very important. Okay. The next thing that we want to talk about in here now that we've gone all these laws, the next thing is, is we're going to talk about something called the Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act. And, you know, the concept of this is disclosure, disclosure to the, to, to the end consumer of what is actually be, what are they actually paying for when they get their loan, what's really involved. Now, there's, as a result of this, um, I'm going to read what this says here, and then I'm going to point out the three different types of things that they basically need to do. And it says, quote, uh, the Real Estate uh, Procedures Act, or RESPA, was passed in 1974 to protect consumers from abusive practices by lenders. So we're trying to protect consumers from lenders. And I don't know whether this statement has changed much even today because when I see people signing paperwork, how, how much stuff they're doing and how complex you know, uh, this is. But it says consumers had long complained about the various fees and commissions paid in a loan process. So as a consumer, I would turn around and take a look at some fee they were charging me, you know, and they all had different names for these fees. You know, I mean, they would call it a point or they called call it a, a warehouse fee or they called call it an application fee or they, you know, and it gets to be so complicated. And it's so that we, again, going back to try to standardize things so consumers can understand what's going on. But it says they've been, consumers were frustrated by this process. A home purchase can be an unsettling experience, which is true. It could be good and bad. You know, good part, the bad part is having to put up with all the frustration. For many consumers, it is one of the most confusing transactions that they will undertake in a lifetime. The settlement charges on a loan seem endless. 
In other words, when you read that document, it's going, you're charging a recording fee, a title fee, an escrow fee, an appraisal fee, a termite fee. I mean, it just keeps going on. One of these, one of the words without the word fee on the end of it going to stop is what you're thinking. Among the charges are fees for credit report, appraisal, termite inspection, title search, and insurance, escrow, recording, transfer fees, taxes, prepaid interest, and various lender fees, also known as they call garbage fees affectionately. In other words, we call them garbage fees because we're having a hard time figuring out what in the world they're really charging us for because what happens is it sounds like, uh, you know, they'll have one thing, say, a recording fee, you know, and they'll call, they'll call it a recording fee, and then maybe down below they'll call it uh, something like a grant deed recording fee or a deed of trust recording fee. You go, God, you know, how many different recording fees do you have? Um, how is the consumer to know if the fees are valid and the, and the customer, and customer or if, if he or she is being overcharged? How do you know that? How can a consumer shop intelligently for the best deal? That's the idea. And what they did is they came up with three things here. The first is, and I'll show you maybe if I don't show you this time, I'll show you the next time. First thing is, is that they have a HUD booklet, okay, that you can write for and get a copy of. And HUD, by the way, I'll show you the next time on their website, has a lot of information for housing. But they have a HUD booklet that explains the loan settlement process and outlines the standard procedures. Now, I went to the website today and took a look at it, and I'll show it to you. But again, as you go through this, even on your own, you're going to realize that you have to have a certain amount of knowledge yourself or have somebody help explain it to you because there's just a lot of stuff there. But there is a booklet that explains. And what the booklet essentially does is it goes line item by line item explaining what those fees are. And they're in categories. They're numbered categories. And I'll show you what that is. But it explains what those fees are. The second thing is, is that you're supposed to have something called a good faith estimate of all settlement charges. What that means is that when you put in your loan application, the lender is supposed to give you this good faith estimate of what, they, what they're going to charge you for the interest rate. And I'll go over what those things are. Interest rate, uh, different kinds of fees like escrow fees, title fees, appraisal fees, all those things. They're supposed to give you that up front so that you can better have an understanding of what you're going to be charged. In fact... What I always recommend is that you should take the time, you get that you get that statement, which I believe they have to provide to you within three days of you applying for the loan. Legally, they're required. You should sit down and with your family and go over those fees and make sure you all understand what's going on, where the, what, what you're really being charged. Very important. The last document that is provided to you is a uniform settlement statement prior to the close of escrow, normally prepared one day or available to you one day prior to the close of escrow. This is kind of like this first one is showing you what, uh, like a prediction, like what they think it's going to cost. This should be more like what they, it actually cost. Okay, This is going to be based on, you know, uh, rough estimates and, uh, you know, like in other words, maybe the, maybe the uh, escrow fees a little bit more because your price of your house was a little bit higher, the loan was a little bit higher, whatever. This will be accurate. Another reason why this form is being used, this settlement form, is because it also shows that you've completed the transaction too. So you may find that as a, as a real estate agent, you may have to be getting a copy of this to go and prove to the next lender that the people are actually selling their house and not holding on to it. Uh, so that's a very important uh, document. 
What I'm going to be doing um, the next time, and I'll just show you quickly on the web what I'll be talking about, which may give you a chance to take a look at it. And remember, I'm always, uh, I'm constantly, you know, every time I seem like I sit down and prepare to talk about this topic, I'm going on the web and finding something new or changing or adding or taking something away. But the next time under website links is where I'm going to be showing you. And specifically, it'll be under Chapter 5, which deals with federal regulation and consumer protection. I've got three different things there that I'm going to talk to you about. And let me see if I can pull this up here. The first one is going to be called the HUD-1 Settlement Statement Booklet. And so when you click on this little thing here, I'm going to be going through what this is. And uh, let me see if I can maximize this window. So I'm going to be spending quite a bit of time going over this, which is going to be talking about things called your settlement costs. You know, where is your money going kind of a thing. And I'll be going through this form, and this is the booklet, if you will, or a variation of the booklet that explains line item by line item what these fees are. Okay? So, for example, um, the, the category of 800 on the form means a category of items paid in connection with the loan. And so I'll talk more about what these different categories are. And when we talk about categories, the idea behind it is that we're putting things, grouping things together. Okay? So it explains what each one of those things are, and I'll go over what they are. I'll show you a form. By the way, for um, your own information, and I don't want to keep moving around and get Bob all dizzied up here, but on um, in your book they have an example of, let me see, I think it's one more button i got to push. Bing, bada, bing, one more after that. Okay. This form right here is going to, we'll be talking about these categories here. Let me see if I can, we talk about these category numbers right down in here on this HUD-1 statement. Okay, so you'll have a rough idea of what, what we're talking about. I'll be explaining what those different categories actually mean. Now to go back to the uh, old friendly website, one more click, I think, and I'll get there. Okay. The, um, so I'll be going over that, and let me close out of that window. The next thing I'm going to do, which I think is sort of interesting, is I'm going to go over this thing called an APR calculator. I happen to find this at... Um, one of the websites and searching on the internet. And the reason why I wanted to include this is because I thought that this APR calculator was a good example in helping to explain what APR really is. You know, what we talk about is that when we get a loan, we're usually used to the fact of uh, paying, you know, we go to the bank and the bank says, uh, you'll say to them, okay, I want to get a real estate loan, I want to get a 30-year loan, fixed rate loan, and you'll say to them, okay, what's the interest rate? And they'll, they'll th throw an interest rate at you. They'll say your interest rate on a $300,000 loan will be 6%, and here's your monthly payments. And they're talking about the interest rate. That's what your interest, that's the, that's the interest that's being charged on your loan. But then at the same time, they have to give you something called an APR. An APR is an annual percentage rate. And an APR is higher than a percentage rate. And if you go around and look at any advertisement in a newspaper, on a billboard, on a flyer, anywhere, you're going to see that the lender has to give you two different numbers. They have to tell you what the interest rate is, and they have to tell you what the APR is. 
And so what I want to do is spend some time going over the APR so hopefully you have enough knowledge of it that you could explain it to your client. And what it is is it's a way of including not only the interest rate you charge but the costs of getting the loan. And this little calculator does a pretty good job of explaining what that is very simplistically and at the same time allowing you to put some numbers in there and come up with the APR rate. So I'll be going over what that is. Okay, so I'll close out of this. Another thing that I'm going to be doing is, is that this is, the, uh, this is the actual RESPA Act or from, uh, from HUD. This is at the HUD website, and this explains all kinds of stuff that you would need to know when you're getting ready to buy a house and also what these settlement costs are. And so I'm going to be going over that with you to make sure that you're familiar with that so you know where to get it. And then another thing that I'm going to be going over, and I want to do this because the last time I, I'm not sure whether it was this class or another class, but the last time I couldn't find this. And what this is, is this is all of an example of all of the different FHA loans. And the reason why I want to do this is FHA is a good website to get information. But what I wanted to do was to have a link there that you could see all of the various FHA programs that are available for you to get if you're buying a single-family home. So when we talk about the normal 203B plan or we talk about uh, uh, reverse mortgages or whatever, I'll show you how you can get information about those and read about the most current stuff. And uh, I'm going to be spending quite a bit of time going over that. So um, I wanted to let you know. And then down here I have some other sites that I think are helpful to you. Uh, links to banks like a Bank of America, Wells Fargo, Viatech Mortgage, which is a mortgage banker slash mortgage broker, uh, stuff about mortgage information and private mortgage insurance. So I've included that in there too during in this area because I think that that's something that's uh, very, very important. So uh, we're getting close to the end. And uh, what I want to remind you about is uh, you should be continuing reading the rest of that chapter. You should also be taking and, um, and looking at those links that I have in here. Please, I've spent a lot of time, so every, every chapter I have links in there to help you and expand your knowledge because I want you to become a resource for your clients so that you can say to them, well, I went to the FHA website. Let me show you where the information comes from. It helps your clients, so I think that's really important. You should also make sure, again, not to sound like a broken record, you should have that study guide completed. Uh, remember, you want to get 100% on that exam. And with that, I want to thank you very much for watching, and we'll see you back here again for show number 10. Thank you.